2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for the one who died for them and was raised. From now on, then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective, even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not recounting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, We are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the screen, in a moment, you'll see a picture of a church building. I grew up in this particular church building in Epsom, New Hampshire. If you were to arrive in Concord, New Hampshire, and drive from Concord to the New Hampshire seacoast, you would pass this quintessential New England church building off on your left as you pass through the town of Epsom. And I can remember sitting in this church building as a second and third grader and hearing stories from missionaries who were serving God in far-off places like Burkina Faso and Albania. Their lives seemed exotic, dangerous at times, very compelling. And at that stage of my life, missionaries were a bit mythical, a bit mysterious. And I, and I'm sure like many of you have, you've met genuine missionary heroes that will most likely die and be forgotten on earth, but whose legacies of faithfulness will remain. Now, it wasn't until I was much older than the time I spent in that church building that I was personally confronted with a paradigm-shifting reality. And that reality is our big idea this morning. That reality is this. The church is God's missionary people to God's world to declare and demonstrate God's grace in Christ. We are God's missionary people. 
And this message will be very simple this morning. We're going to look at the text that we've just read, and we're going to draw out three questions and the answers to those three questions concerning our mission as God's missionary people. So, question number one, why should you and I participate in God's mission? Why? Now here we're talking about the motivations behind mission. And there are at least three of them in this text. And the first one confronts us immediately. Paul says, the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ. Now if you grew up going to church, perhaps you memorize this verse with the word constrains. The love of Christ constrains us. It carries the idea of impelling something forward or directing something, controlling the movements of something, urging something on. So men, consider this. What motivates you to plan something special for your wife on her birthday? Is it fear of retribution? Is it a desire to prove yourself? Is it uh, a desire to show off your photo-taking skills to get great likes and comments on social media? I hope not. I hope that's not what motivates you. Ideally, you are motivated by love for your wife. And so your love for her controls you, compels you, urges you onward, propels you over obstacles in the process of planning something special for her. Now, this verse is something similar but different. It is not our love for Christ that is compelling us. No, it is actually Christ's love for us. Remember John 15 and the words Jesus spoke to his disciples the night he was crucified? He said, my commandment is this, to love one another just as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this that one lays down his life for his friends. See, Jesus' love compels us into the mission of God. So let's meddle together for a moment, shall we? If we have little desire to spend our lives telling others about the incredible good news of God's love in Christ available to all, the same message that we've declared in song this morning, that we've read in the scriptures, if we are unwilling or don't desire to spend our lives telling others about this good news, then what does that say about our perception of Jesus' love for us? What is lacking? Is it our understanding of this love? Is it our appreciation for such love? If we would get rather spend our lives building a platform or making money or pursuing security or having the most fun, but yet we describe ourselves as followers of Christ, then what are we missing? The love of Jesus for us 
ought to compel us into the mission of God. But there's a second motivation, and it's found in the same verse. Look at verse 14 again. Paul says, For the love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all so that... That's a purpose statement. He's telling us the reason that Christ died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. So it's not just the love of Christ for us that compels us into the mission of God. It is the plan of Christ's. You see, Jesus' plan in dying for you and for me was at least in part to change our priorities. He died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves. You see, Jesus' love-motivated plan had the goal of adjusting our self-oriented life to a Savior-oriented life. And another motivation to engage in the mission of God is to recognize that our engagement in that mission is part of how God, through the Spirit, adjusts our self-centered world into a God-centered world. Because life is not ultimately about us. Now, let's be honest. One of the greatest obstacles to living a life on mission with God is that it totally throws us off our groove. I am way too much like Emperor Kuzco. How about you? Are you familiar with the Disney movie, The Emperor's New Groove? Well, Emperor Kuzco's old groove was incomplete, or was rather complete, self saturation, self-indulgence, self-centeredness, self-obsession, until someone throws him off his groove. He has his own theme song even, right? And this perfect world will spin around his every little whim, because this perfect world begins and ends with him. I thought about singing that, but thought that might just get a little too awkward. And it took the heroic actions of his friend, Pacha, who was not yet his friend, who was willing to risk risk his own life for Cusco's life, that began the process of reorienting Emperor Cusco's life. Now, friends, our great hero, Jesus gave up all of the priorities that human beings literally die pursuing. Jesus had the substance of the shadows that you and I chase after in our homes, on our phones, in our workplaces, and even in the church. Jesus laid down the worship of angels, the glory of heaven, the treasures of of eternity, co-equality with God himself. And he emptied himself of these by taking upon himself our own earthly humanity. 
For a time, he turned his back on all of the pomp and circumstances that his position and power rightly afforded him as God so that he might bring you and I to God. But why? Why would Jesus be willing to do this? In part, so that he might free us from the enslavement of self-centered living. Jesus had it all, and he gave it up for us so that in him we might have it all but live for him. He gave his life for us so that we might reorient our lives towards God. So Jesus threw us little emperors off of our groove so that we could see in him the king alone who deserves the orbiting of every human life. The love of Christ and the plan of Christ motivate us towards engaging in God's mission. But there's a third motivation, and it's easy to miss. So look down at verse 16. Paul says, From now on, then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we know him no longer in this way. And the third motivation is the freedom that is found in Christ. You see, what Paul is saying in this verse is that there was a time he would evaluate others, including Jesus, according to the standards and measuring sticks of this world. What can this person do for me? What can I gain from this individual? But Jesus came and he frees us from our self-centeredness so that our perspective on Jesus and on others has been radically changed. And all of this, he goes on in the next verse to say that this is evidence of the new creation work of God. God's making all things new. So how can we be or rather, so we can be radically selfless as we engage in the mission, not evaluating others by what they can do for us or what they might do against us, but rather we see Christ for who he genuinely is, the universal sovereign God, King of creation, who has commissioned us on his behalf. And so we also see others for who they are. The freedom in Christ allows us to serve and love every man, woman, and child with the dignity and the humanity that they deserve as human beings made in God's image. Without the cowering, and without the bending over backwards to earn favor from them. You see, our freedom in Christ frees us from that very natural instinct. Jesus has freed us by his life, his death, and his resurrection from the enslaving mindset that is consumed with how our interactions will affect our reputations and our social platforms. 
And he has freed us to be consumed, rather, with how our interactions will affect his reputation, his platform, the world's perspective on him. Because it's not about us anymore. It's about Jesus. So why do we engage in the mission of God? What are the motivations? Well, Jesus' love for us, the plan of Jesus to free us from self-centeredness, and finally, the freedom we find in Jesus. But question number two, what is our mission? We've talked about engaging in the mission of God without actually defining it to this point. And here we're talking about the message. What is the message that we proclaim as the mission? Well, the message shows up multiple times in these verses, but most clearly in verse 19. Paul says this, That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Now, reconciliation is the idea that there are two parties at odds with one another. But they've been brought back to a state of relational harmony. In this case, God is the ultimate offended party. He has done no wrong. Our crimes are against him and him ultimately. We are the offending party. We turned our backs on him and we scorned his written law and the laws of general revelation in the created world around us. But the message of our mission is this. God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. And he chooses through that, not to count our trespasses against us. Do you believe that that's good news? Is it good news to your heart that in Jesus, God does not count your trespasses against you? If we will embrace Christ for who he is in repentance and faith, if you will embrace Christ for who he is in repentance and faith, that means he doesn't count our sexual sins, our relational sins, our lack of love, our greed, our anger, our drunkenness, our abandonment of others, our lies, our blasphemy, our practical atheism, our cheating, our adultery. None of it, none of it is counted against us anymore in Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. God frees us from those things, takes them off of our record, and then enables us to live lives of holiness before him. In Christ, believer, God has reconciled you to himself and no longer counts your trespasses against him. The message of our mission is powerful. 
reconciliation with God is possible. And therefore, reconciliation not only with God, but between man and man, and between man and a broken creation, that sort of reconciliation is also possible. Because Paul says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. But how? How can a just God look on a sinner like me, disregard and overlook my sinfulness and my iniquity, my trespasses against his law, and not count them against me? How does God deal with our sins and our trespasses in a way that is just but in a way that no longer counts them against us. We'll look at verse 21. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God took the life of this perfect being, Jesus, and made him to be sin in our place. He took upon himself not just our sin, but the curse that we incurred for our sin. Jesus was cursed by God upon the cross for sin with the curse that you and I deserve. Why? So that in Jesus, you and I might become eternally blessed. And our response is to receive this gift of God's grace and to plead with others on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Reconciliation is possible. So this is the message that we must share here in Hill City, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in my neighborhood, if we are to engage in the mission of God. Now, let's just pause for a moment and recognize something. For about two centuries in the United States, Christians enjoyed the favor of the surrounding culture. But those days are far behind us. To be authentically Christian, embracing the message that Jesus is Lord and Savior of everything, to embrace that message is to place ourselves squarely in opposition to the culture that tells us that we must create our own truth, be our own authority, live our own truth. So listen to how Peter Kreft, or Kreft describes this moment. Many Christians act as if we still lived in a Christian culture, a Christian civilization, a society that reinforced the gospel. No. The honeymoon is over. But the news has not yet sunk in fully in many quarters. 
You see, it's okay in our culture for you to believe that Jesus is your Lord. But as soon as you declare that Jesus is Lord, you've crossed a line. You are forcing your truth, your viewpoint, so says our culture, upon others. And that is the height of both danger and hostility and also a complete lack of love. At least that's what we're told. So Christian, consider the message of the gospel. Reconciliation with God is possible through Jesus Christ. Are you okay with the fact that you are part of something that is gonna give you less and less cultural credibility and relational capital in the world around you? Or does it bother you that as you follow Jesus, you're going to be looked down upon by others? You will be looked upon as ignorant, as intolerant. Are you okay with the fact that you are going to offend others simply by existing as an authentic Christian in a world that is anti-exclusivist? Friends, this is not dramatics. This is not pessimism. This is realism. Are you okay bearing up under the shame and scorn of following a once-dead and now resurrected Messiah? And are you prepared, are we prepared for that shame and that scorn to intensify when we declare that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father? That he is the ultimate source of truth, the embodiment of truth himself, and that he's the only way to life. Let's take comfort in the mission as we overhear Jesus tell his disciples this in John 15. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So Sojourn, as a church family, we need to reorient our thinking this way. We need to view ourselves as part of God's missionary people. The name of our church is Sojourn. It communicates that we are sojourners, that we do not belong here. And we embrace that. And we call others into this life of following a king that is widely rejected, but who is no less supreme and sovereign. And God has called us out of the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light, so that we might declare that the cultural gods that are worshipped in the darkness around us, they cannot save. They can only condemn. And Jesus Christ alone is the answer for sin, suffering, death.
death, and despair. And that brings us to our third and final question. How? How do we engage in this mission? We're talking here about the method. And as a church, I'd like us to think in two categories when it comes to the method of our mission. These two categories are gospel facts and gospel acts. So gospel facts. The text is clear here. There's a a message to proclaim. There are facts, statements, propositional truths that have to be declared at some point for us to be faithful in the mission. If we simply love people and never open our mouths to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, then we've not actually engaged in the mission. We've not implored people be reconciled to God. Reconciliation is possible. So if we fail in gospel facts, we have failed, period. But we can't stop there. For many years here in the States, a church could simply declare declare gospel facts, put up a sign, and that church would grow. And I'm not saying that was a good thing. I'm just saying that was a thing. It was possible. Why? Because the church was a favored and valued institution. But no longer. So we need to relearn something from the scriptures, something that we can describe as gospel culture. The gospel has entered our lives and it ought to change our interactions as brothers and sisters. This is why we've spent four weeks on what it means to be a gospel-shaped community. And the change that the gospel creates is itself a missionary proclamation of the power of God. Because let's be honest, there is very little that ought to unite us in this room. So why are we here? The gospel of Jesus. And we get to invite others into this experience of a truly gospel-shaped community. So, gospel facts coupled with, inseparably, gospel acts. Gospel-shaped interactions. Gospel-shaped conversation. Gospel-shaped, gospel-driven deeds of love and sacrifice. And friends, these happen as we live life in community together. And I'm not talking about the hour and a half that we're spending on Sunday mornings together. So we might say our means, our method of mission, our gospel facts or gospel creed and gospel acts or gospel culture. So practically speaking, that means as a church, we have intentionally limited our weekly calendar. Why? Because we want to make sure that as individual, we have time to be God's missionary people. It's not simply because we want to have Sunday afternoon and evenings to ourselves and don't feel like getting together on Wednesday nights. That's not why we don't pack the calendar. We don't pack the calendar 
so that we can live life with Christians and non-Christians in community, so that you and I have time to meet our neighbors, to get to know them, to invite them into our homes for meals and just to enjoy them as human beings, to journey through their highs and their lows together with them, and to do that with one another in community. And we want to interact as a family within this church in a way that's shaped by the gospel. And if we had to boil it down to one word, I think that word would be hospitality. Now, hospitality is an important theme in the scriptures, but unfortunately it's gotten lumped together with a lot of other ideas in our culture. If when I say hospitality, you imagine maybe a sumptuous Thanksgiving feast with all of the trimmings and perfectly set tables and the headache of preparation and dusting and vacuuming and cooking and cleaning and the three-day recovery period after the fact. If that's what we think of when we think of hospitality, then understandably it's not an, ex- understandably it's not an exciting word. But hospitality is far more basic than that. It means love of strangers. Hospitality is really just leaning into the reality that all of us feel like strangers to some degree or another. So we interact with strangers we come in contact with as if they are friends. We welcome them into our lives. We who were once strangers to the grace of God welcome others to come and experience God's grace. As our Sojourn 101 material puts it, we get to gift others experiences of the gospel. Not just the truth of the gospel in words, but the depth of the gospel in deeds. So we welcome the outsider into this space, but far beyond that, we welcome them into our homes, we welcome them into our lives, We welcome them into our life groups. So practically, this is why we will no longer have closed life groups at Sojourn. We want our life groups to be a space where we can welcome the newcomer, the stranger, the non-Christian into experience genuine Christian community. To ask their questions. To air their doubts. To wrestle with their story And to experience and do that all in the midst of a genuinely Christian community. Intent on gospel facts and gospel acts together. So whether it's here on a Sunday morning or in a life group context, as a church, we want to welcome people where they're at. And that means if you are here this morning and you're exploring Christianity... We want you to know that you are genuinely welcome here. You may disagree with us in most of what is said and most of what is sung. We aren't threatened by that. We are genuinely thrilled that you're here. We'll be convictional about how the gospel calls and makes demands upon our lives since Jesus is Lord over everything, but we will wrap that conviction up in compassion, grace, 
and truth. We won't shy away from calling individuals to come to Jesus with all of that 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 entails. But the gospel frees us to love you without fear, without qualification, and to speak truth without hesitation. So please know you are welcome here. No strings attached. And sojourn, those of us who consider this to be our home church, we're going to receive outsiders without contingencies. We're going to receive non-Christians into this space with unconditional love and kindness and grace and mercy because that's how God in Christ has received us. Did God make us clean ourselves up before he received us in Christ? If there's any hesitation in your mind as to the answer of that question, then you've misunderstood the gospel. The gospel is not clean yourselves up and receive Jesus. It's receive Jesus and be reconciled to God. So the same way in which God through Christ has received us, we will receive others and we will refuse to show partiality. Now, in a very practical application, We want to walk into this mission intentionally as a church family. So this month, we're going to begin what will probably be a multi-year effort to connect to this neighborhood, to Hill City. Now, there'll be many things we do down the road in order to connect. But right now, what we're going to do is on October 18th, We're going to invite you, we're going to invite your life group, your family to the facility, 545 on the 18th. We'll meet up here and we're going to go and walk the neighborhood. We'll divide up into smaller groups so it's not an intimidating posse of 50 people walking down the sidewalks. But really our goal is simply to meet our neighbors. This is not an evangelistic event. We're not going to be passing out tracts. We're simply going to be meeting our neighbors. You'll have three to five questions kind of in your back pocket to ask people questions about how we as a church can be a good neighbor in the community. We're not going to have clipboards. We're not going to have surveys. We're just going to try to engage in honest conversations with people. If we're thinking in terms of gospel facts and gospel acts, this is a gospel act event a community connection event. So I hope you will evaluate your calendar and consider joining us on the 18th, I believe that's a Tuesday night, for us to simply go into our community, meet real people, hear their stories, ask a few questions about how we can be a better neighbor here in our neighborhood. Why? Simply because of this. The church is God's missionary people to God's world to declare and demonstrate God's grace in Christ. So let's pray for God's help to be his missionary people this week. Father, we thank you 
that through the faithful proclamation of the gospel at some point in our history, many of us in this room heard the call, be reconciled to God and in your grace and in your goodness, we responded. Father, thank you for saving us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us for overlooking on a daily basis the implications of our salvation that you have called us to be your ambassadors in this world. Father, I pray that Sojourn would be a faithful embassy of light in Hill City and in Chattanooga and that we as your ambassadors would be faithful to embrace the call to verbally proclaim gospel facts while recklessly engaging in gospel acts motivated by love, by grace, and by your goodness. And we pray this in the Lord's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.